All right, well, welcome this morning, and welcome not only to our service here, but to an entirely new study that we're beginning this morning. We'll talk about that as we get started, but before we get started, really on the body of the message, I wanted to give you, well, I wanted to kind of invite you into my living room. And uh, so a few years ago, when my kids were just a little bit younger, uh, we found, first of all, our whole family likes coffee. This was not in honor of National Coffee Day, by the way, but uh, I hear it was this last, I think, Friday. And uh, so I did drink coffee, but that's not unusual. And um, so anyway, we started this thing that we kind of had a coffee club, if you want to call it, on Saturday mornings where we'd sit down as a family and we'd talk about things that mattered and drink coffee. And um, so if I could invite you all into my living room, I'd do that. I called it a coffee date. My kids said, that's awkward, Dad. We don't have coffee dates as a family. Yuck. And, and uh, so they came up with alternatives, things like, um, well... One of them was uh, a slurp and blab. Um, the idea was that you drink and talk, you know. But uh, So we're not having a slurp and blab exactly here, but we are having a time to kind of talk together as a family and say, what is it to, where, where really do we want to go? So at the outset of a, a series of messages on a really important life, um, we want to ask that question. And, and it's an appropriate question in particular for our body right here because we're really asking that as a body. Where are we going? And there are several different ways that we can look at that. We can kind of be marking time. We're waiting for God's man to arrive on the scene, um, hoping we'll recognize him, believing that the Spirit of God will show him to us at the right time. But marking time is kind of a, kind of a rough way to go if we're just here for the purpose of kind of being here because we're keeping the seats warm, you know. Or, or we might say we're just holding on or, or that we're just kind of getting through. But I, I wonder if there isn't a better way. And so as a family... You're all in my living room now, so we're, we're talking. You don't have coffee. Maybe you do have coffee. Anyway, you can share a little up here. No, that's, uh, but, uh, but we want to say, so isn't there a better way when we're gathered here together on Sunday mornings? We, true, we don't have a pastor, but what can we do? And so I'm asking the question, where do we want to be? Where do we really want to be? And that question has a number of interesting potential answers to it. When God's man arrives on the scene, what kind of spiritual condition do we want to be in? You know, in other words, I mean, really, couldn't we ask, is it possible that our spiritual condition is not, not only related to the fact that we don't have a pastor at present? Maybe we have something that we're supposed to be doing about it in the meantime. So what kind of shape do we want our body to be in? Well, individually, you know, I'm working on my own things. I'm taking care of things in my life. But, oh, but we're still a body. We really are. Right now, we are in a body. And as we collectively worship God, what kind of shape do we want our body to be in? This is our body. This is the body of Jesus that we are a part of in Ferndale, Washington. What can we do about that? What kind of steps are we taking to get there? It's all great to talk theory. Yeah, I want to be in really good shape. A number of years ago, my kids got me working out some. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, well, that's a whole story. I'm not a real big workout guy. But, uh, but they said, oh, yeah, Dad, my kids are big workout people. And so um, I got drugged into this. And, you know, if I want to change my condition, it actually takes, ready for this? Work! That's exactly what it takes. I, that's probably why I'm not a big workout guy, because I really don't really like work that much. But, um, but you know, it takes work. It takes actually sweat. I have to do something about it. So if we want to be in decent spiritual condition whenever God's man arrives on the scene, hopefully soon, and if we want our body to be in good shape, yeah, it's going to take work. 
we're actually going to have to put something into it. And are we listening to clues from the Holy Spirit that are essential to that spiritual quest? Because you know what? Even though we don't have a pastor, in the next weeks, we're going to be hearing things from the Word of God that can actually impact our spiritual lives. In fact, not only can, but should. One of the things that's really a useful thought for me to think about is that when we come into contact with God's Word, we're really hearing from God himself. You know, when we hear from God himself, his word transforms us. So, are we listening? Are we listening for clues from the Holy Spirit that are essential to that spiritual quest? How can we get going? Well, first of all, we can listen. It's interesting that in the Bible, there are two different ideas for listening. One would be to have the words go into your ear. You hear because your your little auditory sensory system works. That's good. We're really glad if that's true of you. But that's not what listening actually entails in the Bible. It actually entails heeding, listening with an intent to obey whatever it is that God has said. So as we gather, we're, again, in my family room, I would say to my kids, okay, so it's just not enough to say, yeah, I heard mom say pick up the stuff off the floor in my room. That's good. That's the first step. Mom made a connection with your ear. How about your hands? Are they doing something? Listening is to hear and to obey. And then, really, it's to engage. So the first step is often the hardest thing. Really, it is. In any project, there's a man I heard speak many years ago, talked about getting into a cold shower. He said, just jump in and spread the pain around. You know, Yeah, that's about the way it is. Sometimes the first step is like that, right? So what are you doing to engage? How can you actually begin to apply the word of God that we're going to be hearing in the next weeks to your life? What can you do to serve in our body? What can you do to step outside of your comfort zone and maybe into the life of someone else? How can you engage? We're a body. You can engage right now. You don't have to wait till there's a fancy program with flowery script next to the name of whatever that... No, you can, you can jump in now because you know what a body is made of? Members. I'm not talking people on a membership role. I'm talking people. That's us. We are the body. How do you engage in a body? You take care of things that hurt. You address areas where there's sickness. You deal with issues that you need to be stronger in. You know, I mean, hey, I stub my toe, I suddenly care a whole bunch about my toe. I don't pay attention to a whole lot all the time, but if I stub my toe, you better believe I care about that toe. We can engage, and we can engage right now. And then we can reach. Did you know that we actually couldn't grow as a body while we wait? Because the primary focus of our body is not just a speaker on Sunday mornings. Not even a good administrator who can run things well and make programs happen. The primary focus when we gather on Sunday mornings is about a king that we can't see. And he's here. He he is here. God's man? Not yet. God himself? Yes, he is. So I'd like to encourage us to say let's begin as we take a look at an entirely new section of scripture, a pretty long section of scripture, and we're going to begin just barely get our feet in the water this morning. Can we begin that way? Can we just say, you know, I don't come to church simply because it's a social obligation and people would think badly of me if I didn't come. Or, 
I come because it's somehow fulfilling my religious responsibilities and I feel better about myself because I come. Or just because I want to be able to shake hands with people that I like and know. That's kind of the club mentality, right? But it's easy, it really is easy to get into the club mentality coming to church. Well, why do you come? Oh, don't answer that question. But uh, why do we come to church? Why do we come? Is it for the king? Or is it for some lesser reason? Even maybe a good reason, like this pastor that we really like and hope he'll come. Why do we come? Let's come for the Lord Jesus. Let's listen for his Holy Spirit to show us how that we can listen, heed, how that we can engage with the body and how we can engage or to reach out beyond our body to people that yet need to come. Let's grow. Let's grow as we take a look at God's word. So with that, let's pray and get started on a new story once upon a time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the quiet moment here, now, we ask that you, our God, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us, that you would show to us how we can bless you. You're here. You're present. You're listening to every word that we speak. And quite honestly, you're listening to the words that we aren't speaking, but the thoughts that we're thinking. And so we pray that as we hear your word today, that we would actually, truly speak to you and listen to you speaking to us, that we might hear you with the intent to do what you say, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning I want you to turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30 begins a story that's a true story that's really all about God. But it has a human name to it. And Genesis 30 is a little bit of an early place to begin looking at this particular character. But you'll find in chapter 30, verse 22, that we have the very first introduction to one of the key characters in the entire book of Genesis. If I were to show you how the book of Genesis breaks down, I could show you that you have a chapter here about the about the Tower of Babel. You have a chapter here, about three chapters, about the creation of the world and all the things that God made. You have, and the fall of man and the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. You have some chapters about this character and that character and the things that happened before the flood and Noah. And you, When you come to Genesis chapter, actually a few chapters later here, this is our very first introduction this morning, when you come a few chapters later, to about Genesis chapter 37, you find that from Genesis 37 to the end of the book of Genesis is almost exclusively about one man. And we find out who he is right here in Genesis chapter 30 because this is the story of his birth. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 30, verses 22 through 24. Then it says, God remembered Rachel... And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name, that's the son who was born, Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, we're not real big on genealogies in, 
in America, generally speaking. Some people are. My grandmother was, uh, she'd be ashamed at my lack of genealogical understanding because she was a pretty good genealogist. But, um, but for the most part, we don't pay attention. We think of ourselves in terms of our careers, what we do. But in the Old Testament and in the Bible in general, we find that people were related to their history by the people that went before them. So let me ask you, help me out. Who went before Joseph? Who was his dad? Jacob was his dad, all right? That's good. That's a start. That helps. It's always good to know your dad if you can. So who was Jacob's dad? Isaac. That's right. Someone said it. It was Isaac, right? So, and who, uh, and right. And so then Isaac's dad was Abraham. And Abraham's dad was? He's not going to play much in our story, but it was Terah. Yeah, all right. So, so we kind of know, and so when we come to the story of Joseph, we find he fits into an entire family chronology. He fits into a genealogy, and what you're hearing here in Genesis chapter 30 is really the beginning of that. Now, let me get harder. Here we go. Who was, you don't, don't look at your text, who was Joseph's mother? Right. Now, what part does she play in the story? How does this fit together? It's kind of a complicated family. Rachel's father was, who was it? Laban. Laban. Now, he plays a part in some other story in Genesis, doesn't he? Okay, so Laban's father was? Now we're stretching it, aren't we? Okay, let me get back to my notes. Stretching me, too. <laughs> Laban's father, I thought it was right, but we want to be sure here. Laban's father was? Bethuel. Okay, I know he's a household name for you, but <laughs> Bethuel, and guess why he's important? Well, kind of, yeah, right. <laughs> There's, dads have a way of being that way, right? So he's important because he's Laban's dad, but he's someone else's dad. Know who else's dad Bethuel was? He was Rachel's dad. Who was Rachel? Excuse me, he was, he was Rebecca's father. Excuse me, thank you. We're going to get this straight. Like I said, I'm not big on genealogies, but here we go. So he was Rebecca's father. Who's Rebecca? He was, that's right. He was, she was, give me all the proper pronouns here. She was Jacob's mother. So now we have two families... No, he was not Jacob's mother. She was not. She was? Yes. Yeah. So we've got two families convening, right? We have, what's that? Now that we've got ourselves so confused, wait, let me just say this. It was a complicated family, and it was married across the lines, right? So when, in fact, you find, if you go back a little ways in Genesis chapter 28, that we have, this is the very reason why Jacob was sent to Padan Aram in the first place. In verse 1 of chapter 28, Isaac's called Jacob and blessed him, directed him. So this is Jacob's father's calling Jacob, blessing him and directing him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. They'd been a real hardship to Isaac and Rebekah. You'll remember that with the, one, with the women that uh, Esau had married. So don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, Bethuel, your mother's father, okay? And so your uncle, and take your wife from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Laban and Rebekah are brother and sister. 
Okay? So brother and sister, he says, go back and take one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And that's exactly what Jacob did. Now when Jacob arrived at Padanaram, someone came out to meet him. Do you remember who came out to meet him? She didn't know she was going to meet him. She didn't even know who he was. Who, who arrived on the scene when Jacob arrived at Padanaram at the, at the um, direction of his father, Isaac? Rachel. Rachel arrived on the scene, and she came with a whole bunch of sheep, right? And there was a well, and there's a whole story about the well and what, what Jacob did in removing the stone from the well, kind of a superhuman feat that he did because of this love that he had immediately, first uh, love at first sight with Rachel. But things turned out a little differently as Laban got involved in the situation. So this is Uncle Laban, right? Make sure all the family connections are correct. That's right. It's Uncle Laban. So Uncle Laban does what when it comes to the actual wedding? So by the way, then Jacob works for seven years for what? Which daughter? Rachel, because he loved her, right? So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for seven years so that I can have your daughter, Rachel. Okay? Wedding night. Seven years later, what happens? He gave, her, he gave him Leah. Well, he didn't love Leah. But he didn't somehow notice this. I'm not quite sure how it worked, but uh, until morning. And, um, and he said, whoa, wait a minute, this is the wrong woman. And so Laban said, hold on, it's not our custom in our country to give the younger before the older. So you got her, man. And now you can work for me another seven years for Rachel. So he did. And so we have the beginnings of a pretty complex situation here, right? There's pretty complex family background going on. So he worked for another seven years to get the woman that he really loved. Now, this is complicated even further. I'm letting you into a whole family. It sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. It kind of is. So then there, this is complicated by the fact that Jacob has two wives, one he loves and one he, actually the Bible used the word hates. He hates Leah. In fact, God sees that he hates Leah, and he does something for Leah. Do you remember what he does? He gives her children, because children are a really important thing to a Hebrew man. And so he's blessing Leah with these children, and it makes for some big animosity in the home. Because sister, Rachel, cannot have children. For quite some time. And she is really upset. When you look in the beginning of chapter 30, listen to what she says. Verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Uh-oh, things can get more complicated still. Hey, we have two wives. There's a very strong jealousy between them. One can have children, one cannot. And so Rachel says, all right, we'll solve this problem. Here is my servant Bilhah. You take her and have children by her, and I'll count them as mine. So Jacob, ever obliging, 
does exactly that. Complicated. Complicated family. Now listen to what happens. Leah, verse 9 of chapter 30, saw that she had ceased bearing children, so she said, we can fix this. Here is my servant Zilpah. You take her, and you have children by her, and I'll count them as mine. There's a battle. There's a family battle going on back and forth. So now we have four women involved, guys. Make soap operas look tame. Four women involved, and all of them bearing the children of one man in a battle royal between two sisters who want to have the upper hand. In fact, it's later in verse 30 that we find in verse 14 that this battle comes to an even, just, I mean, it's just, it's blow to blow. It's, it's like one hit after another. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field, brought them to his mother Leah. We could discuss what mandrakes are, but we won't this morning. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So I want these. I'll give you the husband for the night. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. First one after the servant that she had given, Zilpah. Okay? So God listened to Leah. She conceived, bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. That's interesting reasoning. Really? But anyway, so she called his name Issachar, and she conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment now because, and now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So I'm buying his love. You get that? Leah's saying, there's got to be some way that I can make him love me. Six sons later, this has got to be the ticket. And then later she bears right here a daughter, Dinah, first of the girls in the whole family. Poor girl. Folks, that's the story of Joseph beginning. But it's more complicated than that. Whoops. Go the other way. Whoops. There we go. We're shooting lasers at you, I think, instead of pushing the button. There we go. It's more complicated still. Because if you look back at the story of Jacob, okay, Jacob is, his, is Joseph's father. He's his father. What kinds of things do we know about Jacob? That's one of the things we know. He stole a birthright. His name itself means supplanter. He came out holding on to his brother's heel. And he was a planter. In fact, Esau turns that and spins it right back at Jacob and says, isn't he rightly named? Yeah, he was pretty rightly named. So he was, he was quite honestly a scheming man. And he'd been scheming all of his life. It never was a time when he didn't scheme, as far as we're told biblically. He was always a scheming guy out to get what he could. And get this, it's not just, it didn't stop with just Jacob. Look back at Jacob's history. Here is Isaac, Jacob's father, and he is a scheming man. Do you remember how he schemed? They went to a foreign land. He was afraid. They're going to be after me for my wife because she's a beautiful woman. And so he said, say that you're my sister. Oh, and guess what? The same thing was repeated by Grandpa Abraham two times. This is the parentage 
of the hero of our story, Joseph. It's a pretty unlikely beginning. I mean, in fact, it's bad. So we have folks here who have bad family histories. Can I just tell you right up front, so did Joseph. He really did. He had a very difficult beginning in his family, and it doesn't even end there. He was the son of a scheming father, and maybe it's an overstatement to say idolatrous, but it's at least pretty close, if it wasn't full-on idolatry, in his mother. So who was, who was his mother again, guys? Rachel. And what do we know about Rachel prior or, or immediately after this time? Jacob packs everybody up, says, we're going to run one more scheme. He tricks Laban. There's another of his schemes. He tricks Laban and says, we're headed out of here after they've gotten six years in between them because now he's served for, Jacob, for Laban's flocks. Okay, so he's served seven years for, he thought it was Rachel and it turned out to be Leah. Served seven years for Rachel. And he served six years to be able to get the flocks that would be necessary for him to start on his own. He was starting his own business. It takes a while to start a business. And he built up the flocks and he said, okay, well, it's time to get out of here. And Laban wasn't excited about letting him go, so he decided, I'm just going to trick him, and we're going to leave. And Rachel does something. They're packing everything up. And what does she pack up in addition to the family household goods? Idols. Really. She packs up the teraphim, the household idols of her father. In fact, it comes to be, I mean, it, it became a big, big deal later on in chapter, let's see here, just a few chapters later, we find out that Laban pursues Jacob, and he is really upset because he says, you are, you've stolen my household idols. And Jacob doesn't know anything about what Rachel has done. And he says, as far as we know, now being a schemer, it's hard to say for sure, but we don't believe he knew anything about it. And he says, not so, the person with whom you find them shall die. Tall order, but uh, that's what he said. And so Rachel manages to come up with a pretty good excuse. Because if, if yeah, I mean, it would have been a problem if he had found the household idols. And so she sits down on top of the beast of burden that she's riding and says, I can't get up because the way of women is upon me. And so he never finds the idols. Did you know they did not get rid of those idols until much later in the story of Genesis? They, they didn't get rid of the idols until, they, until Jacob was going to go to Bethel and God said, come up, meet me. And Jacob said at that moment, put away the household gods that are among you all the idols that are among you, and he buried them beneath a, a terebinth tree. Get this, guys. Joseph was the son of a scheming father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was the son of an maybe idolatrous mother. There's various reasons that commentators give for why she might have stolen the idols, but guys, they were idols, and she stole them. What was she doing with him? We don't exactly know, but it wasn't a good sign, right? So he's the son of a scheming father, an idolatrous mother, and not only that, he's the 11th son, the 12th child, four women. This is not, not like your most promising beginning to a story. And he's born into this complicated, messy, messy family situation. Really, that's Joseph. Joseph. That's Joseph, an improbable beginning for 
the life of truth and love for God for a life that we'll find resonates with unthinkable forgiveness and flows with grace. It's an unlikely start for a life of faith in God that he could not see. Remember his mom had the idols that you could see. It's an unlikely beginning for a life of faith in a God that he couldn't see, but that he learned that he could trust implicitly. A faith that opened his eyes to see the purposes of God. When all the purposes of man were darkness and ignorance and malice and evil. That's Joseph. That's the family he was born into. And I would suggest to you that that's also hope. It's hope for us whose stories are yet being written. It's hope for us who share dark times or difficult pasts with Joseph who had a difficult past too. It's hope for us because God is not limited by our heritage. He's not limited or somehow rendered powerless by troubled family backgrounds or uh, even a broken past of personal failure. God's not limited by that. He loves to shine his power. He loves to shine his transforming grace into lives that are darkest and most hopeless. He loves to show the riches of his forgiveness and the unfathomable power of his divine love. Joseph's life, we'll find, is very valuable to us for a lot of reasons, and we'll probably get into some of those reasons next week. But I want to just stop for a moment. We have the Lord's Supper coming here, and I want us to think What are the things that are the most difficult about your past? What are the things that stand? It's like, well, if I just had a family like, you name the person that's your personal wishful thought. If I just had the advantages that so-and-so had. If I just hadn't failed in this particular way when I was younger. If I just, you name it. You name it. And I want to ask you, does it have, is it greater than the struggle and the trouble that Joseph was born into 4,000 years ago? And I wonder today if we could do something just a little bit different as we begin this series. I wonder if we could just bow for prayer. If we could close our eyes and talk right to God. I find that a lot of times when people pray, I just let them pray. And I don't do much praying with them. So this morning's a chance for you to pray. And say, Lord, there are things I'd like to change about my past. Things that I've always considered limitations. Things that I've felt are barriers to personal, spiritual growth. But as we'll see in the story of Joseph, they didn't limit the grace of God. And if you, having identified that situation or that trouble or that abuse or that difficulty or that disadvantage that you feel that you had, if you could, having identified that, say, Lord, I'm giving this back to you. You gave it to me. 
you had it as a part of your plan, and I'm going to give it back to you and ask that you would make from this that I consider a disadvantage something of worth for your kingdom. It's been useful to me recently to think that if God had something better for me, he would do it. He's all-powerful, folks. <laughs> he's able to do it. And he's all-caring. He loves me and he loves you more than we can know. So that difficult past, first of all, is not unknown to him. And secondly, he gave it to you in care. And he can make from it a work of grace which will shine the glory of Christ in this body and the people in our community. Can you just pray about that for a minute? Father, we look at this very opening vignette from the life of Joseph. And we're aware that he had a really rough start in life. There were some really positive things, but there were some really tough things in his personal heritage, in his family, in his background. There were reasons that he should have been able to say, I'm a liar because I'm part of a generational sin. I just lie because that's what my dad did, my grandfather did, my great-grandfather did. And by the way, I'm an idolater too because idolatry has been a part of the family. So I just do that. But that's not where he went. Somehow, grace conquered. Love ruled. Forgiveness reigned. We're looking for those answers as we open this story of Joseph. And believing that by your grace you'll show them to us. Lord, as we think about our personal history, and all of us, every single one of us has something in our background, something in our past, something in our family that we wish we could change, that we wish was different, that we wish we could do over. Would you help us, instead of living in regret, living in trying to hide, to live in the light and experience the transforming power of your grace. As we come to your table, we pray that we would join that fellowship for Jesus' sake. Amen.